This is Ron Worrell, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm super excited to be here today with Professor John Coffey, the Adolph A. Burrell Professor of Law and Director of the Center on Corporate Governance at Columbia Law School. He's an expert in corporations, securities regulation, white-collar crime, complex litigation, pretty much everything involving the Securities and Exchange Commission. His name has been bandied around as a potential uh, candidate to lead the agency, actually, at uh, time. And, of course, he's an expert in the uh, Activist Investing Today podcast, uh, uh, favorite topic, Activist Investing. Welcome, Professor Coffey. My pleasure to be here. So today we're going to start by talking a little bit about a paper you authored recently entitled Toxic Unicorns, What Has Been Missed About WeWork's Fiasco? And then I want to ask you a few questions about uh, governance and WeWork and how the jobs are playing in the situation. But um, let's get started. So in the paper, you argue that public investors can be harmed because of something called an IPO ratchet situation. This is where mutual funds are receiving certain IPO protections, I guess known as a, a ratchet, that entitles them to additional shares in the event the IPO falls below the valuation uh, that reflected in the final private equity round. So tell me, Professor Coffey, how are these public investors Investors, how are they suffering, and uh, and what are the risks uh, to the IPO and to the public investors that uh, the IPO could be overpriced uh, when you have these kind of uh, protections? And uh, I want to talk a little bit later about the disclosure. It doesn't seem like this is disclosed very well. Okay, the IPO ratchet is essentially an anti-dilution provision. It's a contract. Uh, those mutual funds who have increasingly come into late rounds of private financing often want protection. And the protection they want is a guarantee in a contract that if the IPO itself, the public offering, is at a price below prior rounds of private financing, they will get protected by the corporation issuing to them a sufficient number of shares to hold them harmless, to hold them in the position they would have been if the IPO had come out at at least the same price as the last round of private financing. Now, that can be very expensive. And there's an IPO study group called Renaissance Capital, uh, which estimated that the cost, if WeWork had gone to a public offering and succeeded, the cost could have been as much as $500 million to wow. the public shareholders to pay off this anti-dilution provision because the offering would have been well below the last private round of financing uh, six months earlier at, at a $47 billion price. And so this is not the, I mean, that seems like the WeWork one would have been one of the most egregious kind of examples of how. Uh, oh, it would have been by far the most egregious. And there was no disclosure. No one was told that the amount of money at a, at a low price could have been X. There, there should have been a grid that said, if the price is only $15, the company will pay this. If the price is $10, it will pay that. And if the price is, ultimately, uh, WeWork was valued after the fact at about $8 billion, And that would have meant well over $500 million would have to have been paid to SoftBank, who was, in effect, its controlling shareholder. So I'm still struggling to explain a little bit how like the public investors can suffer because of this. They suffer dilution and the, the risk that the IPO will be overpriced. Well, let, let's suppose that the last round of 
private financing is sold at $20 a share. And then we do an IPO at only $15 a share. That's 25% down. And that would require the company now to pay that number of shares that would hold the person holding this IPO ratchet provision harmless. So they got the same number of shares and the same value that they would have received had the public offering been at the $20 price of the last round of private financing. It's very expensive to shareholders because not only do you suffer an IPO that wasn't that exciting, but everyone else who holds this ratchet gets paid off with money that you've just paid to the company. Yeah, no, that seems crazy. And I have so many problems with the SEC's disclosure system on like lots of different things, but this is something that, you know, there should be, this is a material point that should be disclosed in specific details. And you've, you've in your- well, I think it was a failure. Uh, obviously, the SEC missed it. I don't think this was a deliberate omission on their part. There were so many things that were questionable in the WeWork public offering. This may have been a simple one that they caught simply missed by an overworked examiner. But you've seen in your paper, you talk about uh, how this, and not in such an egregious, massive way, but these uh, ratchets have existed in other IPOs, but maybe on much smaller scales. And I would say they're present in about 15 to 20% of the cases. That's, uh, they, I'm, I think they will be used less in the future because this case dramatically illustrates how they can harm and overreach the public investor. But if you want to look at other cases, I point out that uh, in the uh, Box Inc. offering back in 2015, there was a ratchet and it cost the company $67 million. In the Square Inc. offering that same year, the ratchet cost the public investors $93 million. And in the worst of these examples, in the Chegg Inc. offering, which was back in 2013, the cost came to something like $146 million of additional shares that had to be issued to the holders of this ratchet provision. So it's not rare that this can actually cost public investors, and I think it should be one of the material factors that the SEC highlights, and that hopefully may even discourage its use, because mm -hmm. I think this can be used in effect, to manipulate the stock price. Definitely that may not be obvious. Let me just explain that in a sentence. If I'm someone who's the controlling shareholder of this company, and we're doing another round of private financing, I want the price to go up to suggest momentum, to suggest that the company is rising higher and higher and higher. And why will I pay an inflated price in this last round of private financing? Because I am held harmless. If I have this ratchet provision and it covers all my shares, I've effectively made a bet where heads I win and tails I break even because the company pays me the difference. That's the kind of bet that any rational person would accept. Absolutely, except the rest of the investors suffer. So we definitely need to see some sunshine in that area. Okay, so just to go back to uh, uh, WeWork overall, uh, you know, there's so many different issues to discuss around the area. You know, one of the favorite subjects of the Activist Investing Today podcast is the issue of dual class share, stru share, share structures. And of course, WeWork uh, never uh, went public, or at least so far has not uh, completed an IPO, but they did have this kind of structure where Adam Newman, the founder, was going to get 20 votes per share, and then when they discovered some problems, this went down to 10 votes per share initially, which I calculated still gave him control of the majority of the votes, so it was kind of a cosmetic change. 
Um, so I, I guess if you could just talk a little bit about that. He had locked up control, and that was particularly strange given the prior history of extreme self-dealing. Uh, you don't usually get shareholders to give you that kind of control when it's also clear that you've been feathering your own nest in the transactions you entered into with your own company. Uh, so this is maybe the most extreme illustration of uh, what can happen when you can lock up control in this fashion. As a practical matter, I don't think there's a chance that Congress is going to outlaw dual class shares, no. and the SEC doesn't have authority to do it themselves. That's They've been rebuffed by the courts in the past when they tried to limit dual class shares. I think the best hope uh, is that investors can push for a consensus that dual class features have to uh, vanish at a sunset point, maybe mm -hmm. 10 years later, maybe five years later. Let the uh, entrepreneur have control without real dissent for five or 10 years. But at some point, that control has got to lapse and the shares got to go back to a one vote, a one share uh, metric. And do you believe that the uh, that Newman was able to, he got this very big exit package, $1.7 billion to leave the company, uh, that, that the his dual class controlling vote really gave him, that was the most important leverage he had. Negotiate. Well, he made out ultimately very well. It's a sad irony here that everyone else has lost money, but he's being paid to leave at a very high premium. Okay, so there's another whole other part of this WeWork, and uh, I think you could bring in Uber as a kind of similar kind of situation. And uh, we, you know, we're finding that a lot of these unicorn uh, companies that IPO or try to IPO are staying private much, much longer than they used to. And during that time when they're private, you, they're, they're having a lot of problems. So with Adam Newman, we saw a lot of insider dealings. One of the things I've heard was that the Jobs Act, which was uh, approved uh, by Congress uh, during the Obama administration, which was purportedly supposed to be encouraging companies to go IPO and had a number of provisions that should help uh, companies IPO, also I feel had an impact of of keeping private companies private longer. And, there was a, and let me know what you think about this. So one of the things was that uh, uh, you're allowed to have 2,000 investors as a private company uh, following the JOBS Act, based on the JOBS Act statute, up from 500 investors previously. And that allows you to stay private longer. But I suspect there's also a lot of other reasons why companies are staying private longer. But I feel like that one you know, allowed them to stay longer, private longer, and they allowed a lot of uh, insider dealing uh, for Adam Newman along that. So I don't know. What do you think? Are there is this a is this a problem? Are there other reasons why companies are staying private longer? Well, first of all, you're quite right in your description of the new IPO, which has a much longer gestation period than the old IPO. Go back 20 years, and the company might be formed in year one and go public in year five. That was the typical period by which you either made it or went bankrupt. Uh, now the period can easily be 10 years. And the number one reason why that is so is that private markets have developed and are able to finance these companies with a great deal of money. After all, the last round of financing for WeWork involved a $47, million, billion, $47 billion valuation, uh, which was way off the mark, way too high, but it was able to be done, particularly because of uh, SoftBank being involved. Now, many things are, account for this longer gestation period. You've pointed to the change in the Securities Exchange Act, which says you don't have to go public until you have 2,000 shareholders of record. 
What I have to tell you is that that's shareholders of record, and 98% of all shareholders are not of record. They are beneficial holders, and the shares are held in street name by their broker. So I don't know that that change has really been that significant in companies staying private longer. I think they stayed private longer because they don't want the immediate oversight of the SEC. They're getting all the financing they want at comparatively attractive prices, and they'll go public only once they are fully mature. Um, That's not good or bad. I think that uh, I'm not opposed to companies taking longer before they go public because that gives them uh, a greater chance of success. Uh, It could be that the 2000, the change from 500 to 2000 could have some impact, but there were very few companies. I can only think of Google that was forced to become a public company because it had too many shareholders that had over 500 shareholders of record because they had given stock options to too many of their employees. And that suddenly triggered the need to go public because of the number of shareholders of record. Um, So you could be right that that's a marginal influence. I don't think it's one of the major factors. I think it's just the immense new size and immense wealth of private marketers today, which you can handle very easily. I'd also point out that if you stay private, you have less liability. There isn't going to be that securities class action brought against you. You don't have the SEC looking over your shoulder, and the financing is quicker and cheaper. You can do a private placement in a month. A public offering is going to take about six months. But then, and then there's also, like you suggested, there's less oversight in the, when you stay private longer. Well, the SEC's oversight is not loved by most corporate managements. Right, but then the, you know, they've been talking from the perspective of the markets. The markets uh, would probably have benefited better the, the economy. I well, I, I would say that the venture capital clear. firms generally can exercise pretty good oversight. They are not known as being easy shareholders. Uh, but in this case, I think SoftBank was so enamored of WeWork that it didn't exercise very strong oversight. Yeah, there definitely was a lot of insider dealing uh, at we- with WeWork's Adam Newman. He had initially received a $5.9 million worth of stock that was originally paid to him to acquire the trademark We name, and he had to give that back. There was a lot of Newman-related insider dealings involving real estate. Had the company gone public earlier, maybe some of these issues wouldn't have revealed themselves or they would have, uh, once it was in the public spotlight of a public th- and under public uh, securities regulations, uh, you know, certain insider dealings would not have been allowed to happen. Um, but anyways, tell me what you think about that. And you also wanted to talk about the impact of SoftBank on this whole situation. They were supposed to be a gatekeeper and provide controls, right? Well, I mean, SoftBank, I think, shows the failure of the usual gatekeepers. In the process that goes up to a public offering, you usually have venture capital firms, private equity firms, uh, underwriters, putting the company under a little bit more control and telling them they got to change some of their ways and mature into a public company. Uh, that didn't seem to happen here. I'm afraid that SoftBank and its own owner were deeply infatuated with WeWork and didn't exercise oversight. The company was engaged in really extreme self-dealing transactions under which Mr. Newman, their CEO, would regularly lease buildings and then sublease them down to his company. That's not very safe. He also sold them the name, We, uh, for $7 million. Usually you don't sell the company its name after it's been in existence for a number of years. Right. 
so, I mean, do you think this is kind of a one-off situation because there was one large owner and not a lot of different groups of owners? And typically these private companies have more... Well, I think it's the combination of Newman and um, SoftBank uh, and SoftBank's own owner who really were a coalition that made everyone else effectively irrelevant. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see if uh, WeWork does go public at some point down the road and uh, what happens there and the, uh, the, what, what we'll see in the future with the IPO market. Definitely an area the SEC is looking at uh, very intensely in terms of uh, trying to drive more IPO. Mm -hmm. We'll see if that happens. Well, you're right to focus on it. And I think it's the kind of failed IPO that will chill the market for a bit. Yeah. No, that's definitely very interesting. Professor Coffey, always a pleasure. 